This is Jamin Baxter, and I serve as Business Development Director for Moody Radio. The only reason we're able to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ on the radio is because of financial support from listeners like you. We also have businesses support us too, like United Faith Mortgage. Faith and family is at their core. It's why they choose to be such a close partner with our station. It's why they specifically advertise on Christian radio stations across the country. It's why father and son John and Ryan still lead the company to this day. Check out United Faith Mortgage and their direct lender advantage at unitedfaithmortgage.com. Thanks to you and to United Faith Mortgage for supporting Moody Radio. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. This is Ed Stetzer Live here on Moody Radio. Our partners and affiliates, uh, Coast to Coast, and also a whole bunch of you now listen to the podcast, which I think is awesome. You can listen. You know, in 2020, we all learned the difference between synchronous and asynchronous when it comes to education. And you can listen asynchronously. You can, as always, subscribe to the podcast at the Moody Radio app or go to edstetzerlive.com. And you can listen at any time instead of just listening on Saturday morning. I can't tell you how many people tell me that on Saturday morning I'm working in my garage and I'm listening and I'm like, well, you're not always working in your garage, so subscribe to the podcast. But always, you can listen live at as at this time uh, wherever you might be listening to terrestrial radio as well. So um, we're actually pre-recording this show, so we're not going to take your phone calls today. But then the pre-recording gives us an opportunity to go a little deeper with some guests because. We could just kind of hit main themes that are, in this case, coming from a new book. Let me tell you about our guest. Uh, he, We actually served together at Wheaton College. Tracy McKenzie joined the history department at Wheaton College in 2010 after 22 years on the faculty of the University of Washington. Since coming to Wheaton, Tracy has turned his attention to the ways in which American evangelicals have remembered their national heritage. He's the author of The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. We're going to talk today about his latest book, We the Fallen People. Now, the reality is, is that, you know, when we get around this season of the year, we see electoral conversations begin to kick up. And we also know that we're Well, starting the season for some, they're going to start campaign for the midterms next year. There are local elections and more. And uh, Dr. McKenzie, Tracy, is concerned about the future of American democracy. And I would say, Tracy McKenzie, I think anyone paying attention should be concerned about some of the issues going on and the future of American democracy. But can you put uh, kind of our current political climate in historical context. How bad is it? (laughs) It's a great question, uh, Ed. Uh, It's historically bad would be the short answer. (laughs) Uh, If we just broaden our focus and think, first of all, about the the year, the past year that we've uh, survived, 2020, it began with the uh, impeachment of the president of the United States, uh, followed immediately by the um, uh, pandemic, which led to the the greatest economic downturn since uh, 1929. Uh, then the killing of George Floyd led to the greatest social uh, unrest since the 1960s. 
then we had the most controversial uh, presidential election since the eve of the Civil War. Then we had the most contested presidential outcome since the end of Reconstruction. Then we had another impeachment of the president of the United States and the first ever of an individual no longer in office. Uh, and so it has been an historic year, and that's even before the events of um, January 6th. Uh, in terms of the uh, sort of the mindset of the American people, uh, Americans have been uh, showing a declining faith in democratic institutions for a very long time. Uh, you go back to 1964, surveys indicated that 80 percent of American people believe that uh, government could be trusted to do the right thing most of the time. Uh, that's fallen um, uh, ever since, uh, so that now it's something that depends from year to year, but somewhere between 17 19 percent of Americans actually trust wow. democratic institutions. And then there's even evidence that Americans are increasingly impatient with democracy itself. Uh, there's an organization called the World Values Survey that does a global survey of more than 100 countries every five years. Uh, and for the last two uh, iterations of that survey in the United States, uh, one of the questions has been, what do you think about a form of government that has a strong leader that does not have to be accountable to regular elections or an elected legislature? Uh, and the reality is, at least according to these surveys, almost one-third of the American people say that they think that could be a pretty good deal. Wow. The word for that, by the way, if you don't pick mm -hmm. up on it, uh, is dictatorship. Wow. So that ought to get us a third. Uh, get our attention. Wow. Yeah, 31% in the most wow. recent survey. Okay, so um, so in other words, not going well. Not going well. Not going so not well. Not going well at all. You know, and, and I hear people say, you know, sometimes I hear people say this is the most divided time in history. And, of course, I, I, I always point back to Civil War and say it doesn't seem that divided compared to that. But it's certainly the most divided in our lifetime. You know, we're probably close in age. Um the 60s might have been a time when it was more divided in some ways, and people weren't sure if the country was going to, you know, kind of come apart at the seams. And, and people talk that way now. So I guess um, you've referred to your burden for the church and her witness. And this means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But what do you think of the church's political witness at present? You've been a historian a long time. But you're also someone who loves the church, loves yeah. the Lord. So what do you think of the church's political witness at present? Yeah, well, uh, the way I talk about the motives that I had for writing the book was that I was concerned for American democracy and I was grieved for the testimony of the church. Um, you know, I'm not the first one to, to notice this, but the uh, deep association between uh, most American evangelicals, the large majority, uh, and one of the two major political parties uh, is one of the defining features has been of the last uh, really 40 to 50 years of American political and Christian history. Uh, and that, I think, is problematic in any context for any reason. Um, one of the voices that I pay most attention to in my own research is this uh, French philosopher, Alexis de Tocqueville, who is the author of Democracy in America, a title that most of us will have, will have heard of. Uh, and Tocqueville uh, was deeply impressed when he visited the United States by American Christianity. But one of the things that impressed him most was that um, religious leaders always held political figures at arm's length. They re refused to be uh, in too close a, an association. Uh, they believed that it was possible for Christians to disagree and disagree honorably uh, over political questions. Uh, and he worried that that was not the case in his native France. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said that when he looked at the situation in France, the close association between the government and the Catholic Church had been catastrophic for the Catholic Church once the monarchy collapsed. And the way he put it, he said uh, that, that the church had lashed itself to a cadaver. Mm -hmm. 
And I love that uh, symbolism. And I worry, I worry lest we do the same thing uh, unwittingly uh, in our time and place. Well, well, I'm I'm a Baptist. So one of the things early on, you know, Baptists were kind of a key part of that distancing, particularly at the founding of the nation as well. And I, too, share some of that concern that the church can be co-opted and and politicians love to co-opt the church. But at the same time, the church, you know, has to speak up and into complex issues that don't fit easily into political sound bites. So I, I do wonder how best to to do that, how how best that we as followers of Jesus can speak up for uh, the unborn, can speak up for uh, the way we speak of immigrants and refugees, can, can, can speak up for religious liberty, can speak up for racial justice, um, all of which are very clearly described in Scripture. But when you speak up on those things, people begin to say, well, you're this or you're that. So are you suggesting that we speak up on those things and just not wrap it in a political party? Or how might we best do that as followers of Jesus? Oh, boy, that's a great question, Ed. And I am not the expert on this. Uh, let me let me say yeah. and let me I'll equivocate, which academics are really good at, yes. at doing that. Uh, I, I want to say that my my deepest burden uh, is for the testimony of the church, not for the political influence okay. of the church. Okay. Uh, and so some of the things that I would recommend in the book, uh, political realists would say, well, how naive that is, mm-hmm. how, how unlikely that is to bear fruit. And part of me wants to say, well, I don't really care, that I don't think the test of uh, Christian faithfulness is necessarily political uh, effectiveness. So I, I think we want to be uh, overtly, aggressively um, nonpartisan in the sense of being willing uh, to cross uh, party lines depending upon the particular issue. And I know that's very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pragmatically, we say we need to be a voting block. We need to be consistently supportive of particular candidates if we're going to expect them to express our interests. But I just think that almost always leads to moral compromise. Mm. I just don't think we fit very well in any of the current political categories. And actually, I think that's healthy uh, when we acknowledge that and sort of make peace with that. You know, right now people are saying, I want to call in, but just to remind everyone, we are we are um, pre-recording this so we can have this conversation. Um, and, and, and I think ultimately, I mean, this is I want to hear your thoughts. So you're an historian. Uh, we might even differ on some of these things, but you write that Americans have embraced the democ- have embraced democracy for the wrong reason, which is interesting. Can you give us more about what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I would just uh, uh, emphasize here: I, I wrote the book because I want to challenge Christians to think Christianly about the public square and what that translates into in terms of our policy positions. We can still disagree upon. Uh, but so um, I, I think it's important to to go back to to square one and ask ourselves, why is it that we endorse majority rule to begin with? And I take my cue here from C.S. Lewis in one of his lesser known essays. Um, uh, he, he put it this way. I'm paraphrasing. He said, basically, there's just two reasons that you would ever uh, truly uh, believe in a majority rule. One of those reasons is because you have a deep confidence in human nature. The other reason is because you have no confidence in human nature at all. Uh, and he went on to say, from his perspective, that, that the first view was what he called the false romantic understanding of democracy. The latter was the orthodox Christian one. 
Uh, I uh, actually believe uh, that our country was founded with a healthy appreciation for that human fallenness and that, uh, as, as Lewis put it, the wickedness of our fellow beings. Uh, but we've moved away from that. And political rhetoric, uh, the way that we frame political issues, the way we describe one another, uh, long ago uh, began to adopt what Lewis called that false romantic understanding. So I want us to, to, to recognize uh, that all the political rhetoric we hear, all the political statements we make, uh, are making religious assertions, often that we're not even aware of. And they're often making assertions about uh, the essential goodness or fallenness of human beings. Uh, and we want to make sure that uh, the message that we're sending is the one that we believe Scripture supports. Okay, so um, there is a sense that the Founding Fathers uh, seemed to think that people would abuse power and created systems to prevent them from doing so. But those systems also have consequences. It makes a real mess in trying to do anything substantive. It slows things down, one senator once said to me, which he was saying is a good thing. He perceived it to be a good thing. So when you look at the current situation and the mess that we're in today, um, do you have hope? Do you have concern? Do, tell, tell me your thoughts. We've got, we got about, about a little less than a minute, and then we'll continue our conversation on the other side. Yeah, well, so sure. I, I, I don't know how you could not have uh, deep concerns. Uh, I think just about everyone thinks that our political system, to some degree, has gone uh, off the rails. But I think we, uh, when we remember that it was designed to move slowly, that it was designed to prevent uh, the ability of uh, one party to quickly uh, uh, have its way, uh, perhaps we'll be a little more uh, patient with that. I do think there's reason for optimism, and we can talk about that later. Yeah, I do. I want to talk more about that as well. We're talking to Tracy McKenzie. He's here at the History Department at Wheaton College. We're talking about his new book, We the Fallen People. We're going to talk some, well, about the impact of that fall, how that impacts us as well. Important conversation in and around seasons where people are talking about politics. We'll continue our conversation with Tracy McKenzie in just a moment. As believers in Jesus, we know our citizenship on earth is actually temporary, but the days can be challenging navigating a world in cultural decline. A.W. Tozer brings help and encouragement in his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. He tackles the how-to of confronting and battling worldliness while we live in anticipation of heaven. Be better equipped to take on each day. Read Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Your copy is at moodypublishers.com. Hey, we're back. Ed Stetzer live, though we're actually pre-recorded. I mean, we're live. We're live right now. We're live. Both Tracy McKenzie, who serves the history department at Wheaton College, and I are live right now having this conversation about his new book, We the Fallen People. And I, I do think, you know, I mean, again, you're a scholar. People always defer. Well, I'm not a theologian, but, but you know, and I'm a missiologist, not a theologian, but the fall really is something that appeared to be on the mind of our founding fathers. Uh, the fact that there's a stain of sin in all of us that causes us to, without proper accountability, without proper oversight, that people do wrong and bad things. We've talked a little bit about how our system of government was set up to deter some of the worst impulses of people. But in today, it seems that some of those worst impulses are being magnified. People are being discipled by their cable news choices. They're being spiritually shaped by their social media. And it seems to have significant implications on our ability to stay together as a country, or if we, even if we want to stay together 
as a country. And I wonder if you, I mean, what do you think the founding fathers would say to us today, centuries after the founding of this country, if they saw where we were? Uh, a great question. Have no idea, but we can sort of guess. Oh, no, but you uh, get to, you're an historian, so you get to extrapolate I, from the I, past. I, I do. So okay. um, one of the things that they're talking a lot about uh, is that uh, for government to flourish, any governmental structure has to take into consideration the way human beings are wired, what motivates them. Uh, and although they didn't use the language of original sin, they didn't use often explicitly Christian terminology, they definitely suggested uh, that um, our sort of uh, prominent motivation is self-interest. Uh, we desire power, we desire wealth, we desire comfort, uh, and we're often willing to uh, uh, achieve those at the expense uh, of others. Uh, and so they would have said, it doesn't matter uh, who is in office. That is a propensity that's always going to be there. Uh, and so they structured a form of government not with the idea that we would put virtuous people in office, but we would not have virtuous people uh, in office. And so when they would listen to American rhetoric today, I think they would be absolutely mystified by the kind of mindset that says if we simply, and you can fill in the blank, drain the swamp or kick the bums out or whatever it is, right. get the right people in office, everything will be fine. Yeah. And they would have said how naive, how right. preposterous. And from a Christian perspective, I would say you're not taking original sin seriously. Yeah. You think it really only affects uh, the other side, not your own. No, that's a good way to put it. Fallen. You call it we the fallen people. And Pac, I know a little bit you just did there, but why, that's, I mean, you put it right in the title. So fallenness really matters. Absolutely. I mean, our system was designed uh, with that uh, human fallenness uh, in mind. And the, the sort of genius of it was that uh, if you structure it right, you, you get better outcomes than you would otherwise, given our our fallenness. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so you, you said that we need to ask different questions. In the book, you said we need to ask different questions about the Founding Fathers. What questions have Christians been asking? What questions do we need to ask instead? Well, the question that, that Christians have almost always asked, it's, it's been the paramount question, is just, were the founders Christian? Sure. Were they trying to create a Christian country? And, and I write in the book that anytime somebody comes up to me and asks me that question, my instinct is to say, why do you want to know? Mm -hmm. Because I, I think it's almost always the case that we're simply wanting a kind of, uh, I call it ammunition to use in, in the culture wars. We want to assert our particular views by saying, look at the founders. They, they shared our faith. And so we ask that question. Uh, and I think we ignore th things that uh, like what were the founders' uh, views of human nature. Uh, the founders actually didn't share very much about their personal, private Christian convictions. But they wrote and spoke constantly uh, about what they thought motivated human behavior. So we have an enormous and a rich historical record about their understanding uh, of human nature. And the, the thing that puzzles me a great deal is that uh, if you trust the, the survey data, a large number of American Christians today do not agree with the founders about human nature. Uh, surveys um, uh, going back uh, now for three decades or so routinely say, uh, that two-thirds to three-quarters of Americans believe that humans are basically good, hmm. uh, and that self-identifying Christians largely uh, mirror the larger culture. And even among those who identify as evangelicals, a small majority of evangelicals today would say we're, we're basically good. Uh, and so we absolutely disagree with the framers in that respect, uh, and we don't talk about that, and I think we need to. Yeah, they, they talked a lot about tyranny. That's not a word we use so much today. They they seem to be concerned that people would assert in inappropriate ways power over one another and work to keep that from happening. You're right. I don't hear people talking about that today. I think in large part because we just can't imagine that tyranny would take hold here. 
Um, you know, you're, you are hopeful in some ways, but you're also writing a book called We the Fallen People. You're concerned about American democracy. Is tyranny a possibility here? Oh, tyranny is absolutely a possibility here, and the, the founders would have said it. it is always uh, a possibility. One of the things that, that I emphasize in the book is that we've long passed any point where we should be uh, taking American democracy for granted, mm-hmm. a, a kind of open and free society uh, for granted. And in fact, Chesterton, I love how he put it. He said, democracy is never in greater danger than when we think that democracy is, democracy is safe. Uh, and so um, it's not bad for us to be um, alert uh, to the possible of danger. Um, one of the individuals that I feature in the book is this man, Alexis de Tocqueville, who is the author of Democracy in America. And it's Tocqueville that really, um, really coalesced the concept of uh, the tyranny of the majority. Uh, he said, you know, governments can exercise tyranny uh, over uh, the people. Uh, but it's also the case that majorities in an open democratic society can ultimately use their power to tyrannize over the minority. Uh, anywhere there is power, the founders would have said, Tocqueville would have said, anywhere there is power, there's the potential to abuse it. Yeah. And, of course, France being an example that would be certainly on mind and, and some concerns for us. Now, you talk a lot about Tocqueville in the book um, and helping us to get to know him and more. Um, you, you mentioned some ways we need to hear from this 19th century um, Frenchman. So why why him? Why, uh, why why your particular and inordinate interest in Tocqueville? So Tocqueville came to the United States in 1831. That was right about the time that the American political system was transforming into something that we would recognize today in terms of its democratic values. And he was a, an astute observer. He was an outsider. He was looking at what he was observing with sort of uh, the perspective of an outsider. And I think he saw things that we no longer see or at least – so much take for granted that we don't we don't think about uh, his book Democracy in America. I would say categorically is the best book ever written on American democracy, best book ever written on America, mm-hmm. uh, and yet it is um, infrequently read. Oh yeah, I thought we read it in high school. We didn't. I, I thought. <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, I don't want to dispute okay. that Ed, it's okay. possible. I mean, uh, I thought I remembered. I took AP history in high school. What you often so, get okay. is very short excerpts. Okay, the book be. itself is nine hundred pages long. You're correct. It, I do not remember reading a nine hundred <laughs> book band. But you know, you it, sort of remember differently your high school days. Fair enough. Okay, uh, but it just covers everything. His okay. interests were far-reaching. But for your listeners, one of the things I think that that would make him so intriguing is he was extremely interested in the intersection between religious faith right. and and public life. And he actually argued that uh, religious convictions could play a vital role uh, in preventing democracies from becoming authoritarian and tyrannical. Uh, It wasn't guaranteed, uh, but he thought it had that potential. And that's one of the reasons I find him so fascinating. Yeah, it it seems, though, that we're seeing today, to bring in another author, uh, the naked public square is more of what seems to be increasingly desire of some people in and engaged in politics. You know, I mm-hmm. I had a conversation with uh, with our our congressman here that represents the district where we both live, you know, and, and in many ways, you know, there's a significant caucus that would say, let's just have much less religion present in public life. Tocqueville, others, you see actually faith as part of what could bring and heal some of the fabric of our nation. How do we respond in a world where the culture of disbelief, to quote another book, the culture of disbelief is so evident and widespread, they don't want religious voices in the mm-hmm. political sphere? Yeah, and I, I, I think I need to clarify a little bit what Tocqueville had in mind. Please. Tocqueville really uh, didn't uh, 
anticipate that Christians would be sort of, uh, you know, standing on the street corners with signs identifying themselves as a Christian voting bloc and, and trying to shape uh, public policy. Mm-hmm. He said that the, the influence of Christianity was powerful but indirect. It was indirect, he said, uh, because of its influence on the – this is the term that he used – their mores. Or sometimes modern writers have used the phrase habits of the heart. Uh, and what he said that Christianity implanted in human minds was that simply the idea that not everything you have the power to do is permissible to do. Mm. So he really wasn't thinking necessarily about, say, the regulation of uh, behavior. He wasn't necessarily thinking about uh, regulation of um, alcohol consumption sure. or other kinds of uh, vice. Uh, he was saying, how do you avoid uh, the a catastrophe of the French Revolution right. and, and a massive slaughter of, uh, in the name of the state. And he said what he thought he saw in the United States was a mindset that just uh, inhibited people. He called it a habit of restraint, mm. uh, that there are limits on what uh, we're able to do rightly and justly. Uh, and so in that sort of a little bit vaguer but more foundational way, he believed religion would have its uh, impact. And fascinatingly, when we look statistically, the U.S. is an outlier. You know, France is one of the most secular countries in the world. Worth noting that France was at one point the most widely embraced, self-identified Christian mm-hmm. state in the world. Uh, government coercion does not bode well for long-term vibrant faith, where the U.S., uh, along with a few others, Ireland is a, is a standout on some of its religious faith and practice. People identify as Christian. Um, does you talk about how the faith of people impacts their governance? Has our governance impacted the faith and the robust faith of people here? Uh, that's a good question. It's not something that I look at uh, in the um, uh, in the book at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, does does government have effect on people's faith? I would say absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, how that functions, I'm not um, prepared yet. No, that's to, I just wonder if the enforcing, you know, the, the French enforcing religious belief and practice where the U.S., you know, excluded that opportunity to enforce faith and practice. It seems that that opened the door for more faith and practice. Religious well, that's certainly an argument that many historians yeah. have made that yeah. uh, this, the, if you want to say it, the sort of uh, deregulation of the religious marketplace uh, actually led to all kinds of. Um, multiplication of opportunities and maybe greater vitality. Yeah. So um, you you say that populism typically preaches a false gospel. We got about a minute. What does that mean? Whoa. Uh, b- basically, populism tells a story about the human condition, uh, and it says that there is a threat that's external, uh, that the people themselves are righteous, uh, and the best way to counter that threat is to identify a strong leader who will vanquish the uh, enemy of the people. Uh, it's a comforting story uh, in which uh, we are righteous and they are evil. Uh, I don't think it's a story that jives very well with a, a fundamental gospel understanding uh, of the world as it is. Hmm. We're having a conversation with Tracy McKenzie. By the way, I mentioned two books without naming them specifically. Uh, the Naked Public Square is not just a random phrase that I use that might be a little strange to people hearing, but actually a, a 1984 book. We'll link in the show notes as well, Richard John Newhouse, and also The Culture of Disbelief is a kind of became a very well-known book in, I guess, the 80s and 90s, I remember, but uh, The Culture of Disbelief by Stephen Carter. So we'll put both of those linked in there as well. In addition, most importantly, we, the fallen people, you can go to edsetzerlive.com, find that there. We're going to continue our conversation. It's pre-recorded, but we're going to continue our conversation, fascinating conversation, with Tracy McKenzie of Wheaton College in just a moment. Hey, 
Hey, we're back. Um, Ed Stetzer Live, and this is a pre-recorded episode. Uh, political season, ramping up at some places, local elections, uh, always on the docket and more. Um, so we're talking to Tracy McKenzie. He, he has a new book. It's actually a new book called We the Fallen People. And so I want to encourage you. You can go to edsetzerlive.com, find the link right to follow along with that book. All right. So at the, at the, by the, by the way, the, the full title of the book is We the Fallen People, the Founders and the Future of American Democracy. Um, we were talking a f- uh, before the break about about populism, and when we hear populism, we think maybe that's a good thing. We want to, we we the people, we the people decide these things. So you your answer seemed to tie it up in ways that might be less than positive. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think it's important first of all to just define terms here. Uh, populism really is um, it, it's not defined by the policy positions. Populism can be a movement of the left or of the right. Uh, what really defines populism is it's a kind of rhetorical strategy for for framing public issues and for justifying uh, particular policies. Uh, and it tells a story. Uh, and I think the most effective uh, political movements do tell stories that, that fold uh, a lot of uh, individuals in, make them feel a part of that. Uh, and I think populism can have a positive effect. It, it often helps to identify social ills. It often helps to motivate individuals uh, to hold their elected officials accountable. That's that's positive. Uh, but the story that it tells is, um, uh, I think, inconsistent with the gospel. Uh, it basically says um, that uh, original sin resides only in our opponents, uh, that the image of God resides only in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it almost always emphasizes fear. Uh, the consequences of defeat are catastrophic, as the way it's described. Uh, your very existence is at stake, and it tends to justify authoritarianism. Populism often ends that way. Uh, and we need to know that. That's why I spent considerable time with the presidency of Andrew Jackson, who I really think sort of cut the mold for, oh, for a, sure. a populist leader. Uh, and I don't know any other way to describe Jackson but as an authoritarian. He brooked no uh, disagreement. Uh, he never believed that it was possible for someone to take a position other than his own uh, honorably. Uh, and he often played fast and loose with uh, legal restraints to get his way. But he did win an election. So, So is the... Upon winning that election, do I mean, can you do I mean, just for example, just a a very modern application, the number of executive orders is just stunning. And about the last three presidents in particular, um, I mean, basically ruling from the presidency, which is not something that the founders would have seen as either normative or I, I guess probably even appropriate. But they did win elections. So when you win elections, like you devote a lot section of the book to the election of Andrew Jackson, um, don't you get to decide those things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. That's one of the reasons that I think it's fascinating to go back and look at Jackson's sure. election, because Jackson is the f- first president who actually said uh, that an election should be thought of as a popular referendum. Uh, and so if he won the election, whatever he believed is something by definition that the people, as he would put it, would have endorsed. Uh, and so um, uh, he would basically say that the people are the highest authority on earth. They elected me. Anything I do now uh, bears uh, that kind of moral authority. The founders would have been aghast. But that sounds so similar to. And I'm not I, again. I'm you know I've got my opinions on different leaders and presidents, but that sounds like 
I mean, I so I, my lifetime, that sounds like almost like what every president would say. I have a mandate. You know, I have a absolutely. mandate to do this. A- ab- absolutely. Okay. And, and I think, again, the reason I'm writing the book is just so that we can see that with new eyes. For something that we take, we want something that we take for granted, all of a sudden to look strange to us. And we say, okay, now why is it that we think that's appropriate? Mm. The founders thought the presidency actually would not be a very – uh, active branch of government. It, it had a very limited role. It was to execute law that the legislature made. Uh, and of course, the legislature doesn't make many laws anymore. It doesn't seem like it does. Uh, and so we justify uh, the ever-increasing concentration of power in one individual uh, as a kind of necessary response to a, a dysfunctional system. Hmm. I was, at the time of this recording yesterday, I flew back from, uh, I was just at the National Constitution Center there in Philadelphia. We had an event at the American Bible Society opening their Faith and Liberty Center. And uh, Arthur Brooks was there. He spoke. Uh, Arab Bernard and I spoke. Um, there were some performances. And kind of recurring theme was there, the American Bible Society, you would expect, that thinking the Bible is kind of a third founding document as in the country's history, which is, again, you, people don't realize some of the connections. And I think that's one of the things that people look to historians like you. And there are pseudo-historians in evangelicalism that are also saying the whole array of things that are not true. But the biblical truth of the fallenness of people is a recurring theme. And you seem in some ways, I know historians, maybe I shouldn't say this because you probably won't like how I frame it. (laughs) But you seem you're kind of warning, sounding a warning, you know, that populism preaches a false gospel and more. Um, so, again, as much as a historian is willing to kind of, are you sounding a warning? Is there a false gospel at work here? And how might we respond? Oh, I absolutely am, okay. am trying to sound okay, a, okay. a warning. I just don't know how much historians are, you know, yes, I'm sounding a warning. Yeah, I, it seems well, like it. Historians uh, I often. Believe, I just don't believe you use the word warning. But, okay. uh, historians in the academy often would say that it's up to the reader to sort of uh, make applications to the present. And, and I, I do cross that line quite intentionally. And I do so out of a, a sense of, of calling. I, I wrote. I wrote the book because I wanted to be in conversation with the church. Uh, and the warning is, I think, that if we're not very careful, the salt will lose its savor. The message that we will be preaching is more and more shaped by the political leaders around us rather than by Scripture. Uh, and um, uh, I think the, the testimony of the church is, is what is, is at stake. Uh, and, and I'm not naive enough to believe that if we rectify our testimony that uh, automatically that brings the kind of political success that we desire. In fact, it may have exactly the opposite effect, but I'm not sure that that should constrain us. Mm. You know, it's interesting when you look at kind of how churches right now are responding. I, I wrote an article. I'm the um, editor-in-chief of a magazine called Outreach Magazine. I'll link to the article in the show notes. And I talked about uh, the great sort uh, kind of based on a book called The Big Sort, but mm-hmm. the great sort is seems to be that people who are hearing 20, 30 hours a week on their cable news, uh, right and left, uh, they want the ideology they're hearing communicated on cable news to be reflected in their church, where before they wanted more theological alignment. We could differ on some things, but we believe the scripture is the scripture. We believe the inerrancy of scripture. We believe women and men need to hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. But now there's a pastors are hearing a greater desire for ideological conformity. Pastor, I saw this on cable news. How come you're not saying something? So uh, how does this line up with the concern that you have, or maybe it doesn't at all, where the way people are responding and seeing the role of government in 2021 and beyond? Hmm. I have to think about that a little bit. I mean, one of the reasons that 
that I was was motivated to write is that I believe for most of our history, uh, there has been a, a kind of natural temptation to conflate our political uh, values with our uh, religious uh, identities. There's no question that we like those identities to stack up really uh, neatly. Right. Uh, and, and so I think that's I think it's almost a perennial uh, temptation that um, that Christians face. Uh, I think it is exacerbated uh, in the last generation because of the fragmentation of news sources, because of our ability to uh, uh, sort of hide ourselves away in these uh, echo chambers uh, where we're rarely challenged to think uh, differently. And so I do think it's exacerbated. Um, and, and I think it is uh, it's an epidemic. Um, I, I don't know how else to say it, except that I think that the testimony of the church is being badly, badly, badly corrupted. Uh, and the the tragedy is how little we're aware of that. Yeah, and I think ultimately your book, and again, just remind everyone, the book is We the Fallen People. Your book points to how, well, in some ways, how we have historically been co-opted, um, how the founders saw things might help us to see things more clearly. I'm thankful for some of the challenge you bring there as well. Um, tell us a little bit about your reference. You have a chapter um, specifically dealing with the forcible relocating of Native Americans mm-hmm. in the 1800s, focusing on the, 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 quote, removal, unquote, of the Cherokee when Andrew Jackson was president. Um, you mentioned Andrew Jackson. You focus on that there. What can we learn from that episode today? It seems kind of out of space and out of time, but you make some application. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted this, first of all, to just uh, wrestle with that uh, by situating it at the time when the United States is becoming ever more vibrantly democratic uh, and to be uh, simply aware uh, of how common it was uh, for Americans to celebrate the growth of American democracy while also justifying the re- relocation of uh, Native American peoples as, in some sense, a virtuous thing. It's not that there were not voices raised against it, but there were always minority voices, and even minority voices in the church. Uh, and so I want that to be a kind of object to listen. I, I, I tell my students, excuse me, I tell my readers and my students uh, that when we encounter uh, the past, and particularly moral questions in the past, I'm always mindful of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 18 of the two men who go into the temple to pray. And one says, you know, Father, I thank you uh, that I'm not like those people. And the other says, have mercy on me. Uh, we need to look at Indian removal, Native American removal, and not say, I'm so glad that we would never do that today. We need to say, Lord, have mercy on us and prevent us from such a, uh, an evil uh, act. Mm. Yet people were blinded, and it makes us wonder what we're blinded about today. The book is We the Fallen People, Tracy McKenzie. We're going to continue our conversation. We're pre-recording this. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. McKenzie in just a moment. Hey, we're back. Ed Stetzer Live. I'm Ed Stetzer. This is a pre-recorded episode, but we're so glad to have Dr. Tracy McKenzie. Uh, Tracy serves in the Wheaton College History Department and well-respected here. I'm, as many of you, I think, probably know, I am uh, a dean and a professor at Wheaton College as well. I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, so I have the privilege of seeing him at an occasional faculty meeting in person from a distance across a crowded room. Um, but he, we're thankful for his work, his scholarship, and more. Okay, so... Um, historian with implications for today. So 
um, which some historians do and some historians don't. It's an interesting line that you choose to cross or some cross, some don't. I think increasingly people do. Um, I guess it comes in waves probably. But you have some mornings uh, and encouragements for us based on history and your look at the modern situation. Tell us about some about those. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. And I, in, in some respects, I wrote the book to be able to write the concluding uh, section that dealt with both uh, warnings and encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll start with uh, the warning. Uh, I, I think th- th- there is no reason that we could not see a scenario in which uh, American democracy becomes more and more and more dysfunctional and American openness or even support for some authoritarian alternative becomes more and more uh, likely. I, I think the study of history shows this. There's no reason to think that there is a line that uh, a society crosses where there's no going back, that it is ever after committed uh, to uh, a free and open uh, society. I think democracy is, is fragile. Hmm. Uh, and actually, I think one of the ways that we protect it is by acknowledging that fragility. And I would argue by beginning with the understanding that that fragility rests as much on uh, the darkness of our own hearts uh, as it does on the danger posed by external enemies. Hmm. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, famously once said, uh, you know, that if American democracy uh, does not survive, uh, it will be because it has died by suicide, not by uh, ex- an external enemy. And, and I think that uh, is absolutely uh, correct. But so, but really, I mean, really, do we should we be sitting around concerned? That our democracy is imperiled. I mean, do you, are you concerned at that level? Yeah, I am. Okay. I mean, not, not that I think uh, we need to go by uh, the uh, uh, supply of uh, freeze-dried foodstuffs yeah. to stock in, yeah. in the basement. Not that there's anything wrong with that if I happen to have some <laughs> in my basement. But anyway. But I mean, I, I don't <laughs> think that the collapse of society is imminent. Okay. I, I just think that the trends are all in the wrong direction. Okay. Uh, and the worst thing that we can do is to say that they will rectify themselves. Um uh, Any time a third of American respondents believe that uh, a powerful leader that is not accountable to uh, an elect- oh. any elected legislature would be a good thing, there's reasons for us to, to sit up and, and take notice. Well, you know, I, I hadn't heard the phrase a lot, the thin veneer of civilization until just the last mm-hmm. several years. And people are going to say, you know, I mean, can we – so, so I, I tend to be among those who think that the um, the structures and systems of our democracy are – strong and uh, have a have both a heritage and a practice today. But, you know, I do see, I mean, we just see more and more people who are um, angry, who are feel unheard. They feel marginalized. They feel, and, 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 you know, when people feel unheard or, you know, or dismissed by people who may differ from them, and sometimes we can be the dismissers. Sometimes we're the dismissed, but, I think fear is a driving force. I mean, we watch these political ads, Tracy, and they're driven by fear. Yep. And people seem to, and people say, oh, I hate negative ads, yet they work, so people keep using them. So, I, I mean, again, you're the guest. So I, I wonder, I, I, I too am concerned. I'm concerned about the future of American democracy. Um, so what are some things that we can do as Christians, I mean, there's some things obvious, you know, we could run for office, we could, we could and should vote. Um, but are there positive steps that Christians in the U.S. can take to strengthen our democracy first? And I want to talk about our witness second. Yeah, uh, I actually uh, think they're inseparable. In, in fact, I 
prioritize strengthening our witness. I happen to believe that there are things that we can do that will strengthen our witness that will have the effect uh, also of, of positively affecting uh, democracy. But I, I think that the priority has to be uh, in, in that order. I, I suggest uh, a variety of things, starting with uh, not necessarily running for office and, mm-hmm. and, and trying to uh, have that kind of public influence, but to take a Christian mindset into the voting booth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that means a variety of things. I think it means, for one, uh, taking seriously the fallenness of every human heart in every political party and every political leader, uh, which means that uh, if we really believe what we say, uh, we will be hesitant to uh, give power uh, to any particular group. You mentioned earlier the the multiplicity of executive orders, and we, we tend to really brew executive orders when it's the other guy right. giving them, not right. our guy. Right. Uh, and that's utterly uh, inconsistent. So we start there. One of the things I feel, I think, most strongly about uh, is um, is rhetoric. And I argue in the book that the way that we frame political issues are uh, verbal Trojan horses. They're full of all kinds of worldview assumptions, even if they're not explicit. And one of the things that I've been increasingly troubled by is to hear Christian readers say, you know, rhetoric just doesn't matter. In fact, there was a Washington Post columnist who is sympathetic with a Christian perspective uh, last year. He said, you know, turn the sound down. Uh, if you don't like what people are saying, but look at what they're doing uh, and what they're saying just doesn't matter. Uh, and I think that is tragically short-sighted. Uh, I, I think the one of the things I stress uh, as a teacher is that uh, there's always a kind of subtext to the way that we frame uh, issues, what uh, one person calls the teaching behind the teaching. Uh, and I think that's often the more important message that we send. And I think the teaching behind the teaching and a lot of political rhetoric denies original sin, denies the image of God, uh, denies almost everything that we th- would claim to believe about human nature. Uh, and it doesn't bother us as long as it's affiliated with uh, policy positions that we like. Mm. You know, in the um, Arthur Brooks talk that I'm just reflecting on when we were at the National Constitution Center, he talked about the disgust that people feel for one another. And I and I struggle with this, you know, because I, I hear some things and I'm like, oh, that, that really is a disgust worthy thing. I mean. Um, there are actions that government, Congress votes and more that really are unjust and wrong. Um, I think of issues related to life. I think of issues, uh, comments related to immigrants and refugees. I mean, I can think of 10 examples. So yet at the same time, I, I was even challenged last night when Brooks, uh, Brooks was talking about this. You know, he brought us to Matthew chapter five, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um, how do we love our political opponents in such a way that it's good for our both our soul because jesus told us to do it but it seems to also be good for our democracy yeah so i mean i think part of it is again i'm beating the horse dead but remembering that the line between good and evil doesn't separate us it runs within each of our hearts uh, individually uh and and so our particular position our group our in group uh hopefully has uh some uh, wise and biblically informed insight uh, but it doesn't have a monopoly on insight. Uh, the view of the other side is maybe inferior to ours, but it's not wholly without merit. It's rare uh, that that would be possible. Uh, I really think the Luke 18 uh, parable of Jesus is, is operative here. Even when we uh, would respond with a kind of moral condemnation of a particular position that may be righteous, uh, we cross a line if we begin to treat those people who advocate those views in some sense um, uh 
worthy of condemnation in a way that we are not. So, you know, when the tower falls uh, on those men at uh, Siloam, Jesus says, do you think that they were uh, more deserving of this than, than you are? And, and our, our position has to be no, that's, that's, not, um, that's not how we feel. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's, that's really where it begins, uh, not treating others who disagree with us as our enemies, one of the questions that I like to ask readers is, is what's the end game? What is the end game? If the other party is fundamentally illegitimate, what are we about? Are we in seeking a one-party society? Uh, and I would simply say there has never been a free one-party society uh, in America. We should pray for a healthy two-party system, not for the elimination of one of those parties. 30 seconds, Christian witness. How do we maintain our Christian witness in a divided time? Uh, we stop worrying about winning elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, recognize that uh, a, a courageous and uh, orthodox stand uh, will make us feel very uh, isolated from either party. Tracy McKenzie is our guest. We talked about his book, We the Fallen People. This is a pre-recorded episode as well. Um, let me encourage you to pick up the book as well. Let me thank my team uh, as well. Our great team, Karen Hendren, our producer, engineer, Courtney Young. Here today's program again, go to edstetzerlive.com. Remember, Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, which itself is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening.